Welcome to Endless Summers, an Australian Test Cricket History Podcast. Episode 4, 1901-02 vs England, Barnes and Noble. The advent of the Boer War in South Africa caused an interruption of international engagements. The 1899 Australians had originally planned to visit South Africa on their way home, but the outbreak of war scuttled that notion. The continuing war also affected the proposed 1901 tour of Australia by England, with it being postponed. 1900 became the first year since 1878 that no test matches occurred within a calendar year. Some cricketers had even signed up to fight in the war, the most famous of which was J.J. Ferris, who caught a fever and died while serving, aged 33. When the New South Wales Cricket Association unveiled a tablet in the Members' Pavilion as a memorial, Charles Turner, Ferris's famous bowling partner, could often be found nearby, drink in hand, having a drink with Jack. Upon his return from the 1899 tour, Joe Darling's father had arranged for the purchase of a 4,000 hectare sheep station in Tasmania. The station was dilapidated and overrun with rabbits, requiring Joe's full attention. As such, whilst he played in the 1899-1900 season, he was unavailable for matches the following year. New South Wales won the Shield in 1899-1900, dominated by Monty Noble, who scored three centuries and took 24 wickets. He was ably supported by Trumper and Gregory, who both averaged over 50. 1900 also marked the end of the first real attempt at creating a united organisation to control cricket in Australia, with the disbanding of the Australasian Cricket Council. Unable to overrule the power of the players, and with New South Wales withdrawing support, the council ended on the 2nd of January. The next attempt would not come around until 1905, where the creation of the Australian Board of Control for International Cricket would once again ratchet up the tensions between players and administrators. The highlight of the 1900-01 season was Clem Hill's 365 not out in their innings victory against New South Wales, the highest first-class score in all cricket to that stage by an Australian. New South Wales had their revenge in the return game, however, putting on 918 runs, the highest recorded by a first-class side in any innings, with Iredale, Noble, Gregory, and newcomer Reg Duff among five century makers in an eventual innings and 605-run win. The Shield, though, was dominated by Victoria, who won all four of their games. The win was built around two youngsters, the batting of Warwick Armstrong, who scored two centuries, and the slow left armers of Jack Saunders, who took 29 wickets. Both players would make their Australian debuts the following season. The 1900-01 season was also significant, as it marked a transition from six separate colonies to a single nation, with Federation occurring on January 1st, 1901. It's important to note the role that Test Cricket had played in helping to establish an Australian identity with sides representing the whole of Australia competing against the English for over 20 years prior to the establishment of the Australian nation. These contests helped break down the feeling that the colonies were simply an extension of England and create a national identity that was realised with the completion of Federation. With the ending of the Boer War seemingly close at hand during 1901, it was decided that the postponed tour of 1901 would now happen over the summer of 1901-02. The Melbourne Cricket Club invited their compatriots at Lords to run the tour, However, they faced difficulties in putting together a side, as many counties refused to release their players. As such, Lords withdrew from putting together a side. The Melbourne club then approached Archie McLaren, who, after much cajoling, agreed to bring over a team. He too had many difficulties putting together a squad. Wilford Rhodes and George Hurst deferred to Yorkshire's belief that they needed a break after a tough season, whilst Jack Mason and Reg Tip Foster declined to tour due to business interests. As such, McLaren would end up taking a very inexperienced side to Australia. Other than himself, only Tom Hayward had played in Australian conditions. 
Tildesley, Quaife, Jessop, Lilly and Jones had all played in tests in England, however. The squad had six players without test experience. This included John Gunn, the nephew of former test player Billy Gunn, Charlie McGee, Colin Blythe, Len Braund and Harold Garnett. Of those, Blythe, a slow left armour and Braund, a leg break bowler, would go on to have test careers at extended pass his coming series. The final player selected was a shock. Sydney Francis Barnes was a right-arm medium-fast bowler who played four first-class matches for Warwickshire for little success in the mid-1890s. He then moved to the Lancashire area, where he spent most of his time playing local league cricket, the level below county. He made two appearances for Lancashire in 1899, but again, had little impact. He had done better in second eleven cricket, but refused to join Lancashire full-time, preferring the better pay offered in league cricket. McLaren on the lookout for players, he coaxed Barnes to play one county game for Lancashire, where McLaren was captain, against Leicestershire. Barnes took 6-70 in Leicestershire's only innings. This was enough for McLaren to invite him to join the tour, which Barnes accepted with some misgivings over the potential loss of wages he would suffer due to missing work. Coming off so little first-class cricket, Barnes' selection was considered to be the most daring experiment in the history of the game. Little was expected of this English side, especially by their home press. The team arrived in Australia in late October and began preparations. They would face each of the three main colonies prior to the first test in Sydney in mid-December. The first of these was against South Australia, where 42-year-old George Giffen turned back the clock by taking 13 wickets in a 233-run win to the home side. McLaren's side bounced back against Victoria, winning a low-scoring game by 118 runs. Barnes gave the first showings of his talent by taking 12 wickets, including seven in the final innings to bowl his team to victory. The match against New South Wales was the closest. A first-inning century to McLaren gave the English the advantage, but 151 from unheralded Les Poitevin, batting at number 9, allowed New South Wales to set a total that the English would fall 53 runs short of. Following a series of country games, the English returned to Sydney for the first test. Despite two years of shield cricket since the 1899 tour, the Australian eleven was composed entirely of players who'd made that trip. Darling, who played no first-class cricket since the end of 1899-1900, returned to captain the Australian side. He was joined by Trumper, Hill, Noble, Gregory, McLeod, Kelly, Trumbull, Laver, Howe and Jones, with Poitavin being named 12th man after his performance in the tour match. The English would have four debutants, with Braund, Gunn, Blythe and Barnes all receiving their caps. McGay and Garnett were left out. McLaren was successful at the toss and chose to bat. The two most accomplished English batsmen, McLaren and Hayward, set out to open the innings. McLaren started Briley with a boundary off Noble's first ball, and then soon after hit an off-drive to the boundary off the same bowler. Jones' bowling was causing some difficulties, although many noted his pace was down in previous years. Hayward was much more circumspect, only getting off the mark when McLaren was already on 13. By the time 32 was reached, McLaren had 27 of them. Both opening bowlers were then switched, with Howe and McLeod replacing them. Both bowled tightly, the batsmen playing them with a fair deal of respect. 63 was reached after the first hour of play. Just before lunch, McLaren, who had moved his way to 46, was then dropped by Howell at second slip. Soon afterwards, the break was taken, the English having made their way to 85, with Hayward having somewhat caught up to his partner, having made 34. McLaren reached his half-century four hours after lunch and then began to attack more, hitting drives to the boundary either side of the wicket off McLeod. Hayward brought up the 100 with a square cut off Jones to the boundary. Trumbull was then tried for the first time in the match, but had little impact, with Hayward bringing up his own 50 with an off-drive. Darling rotated his bowlers, including six-bowler Labour, but these had little impact, with the score moving past 150 with ease. Finally, Hayward jumped out to Trumbull and launched him towards long-off, where Hill ran in to take a difficult chance. 
Hagel is out for 69 with 11 fours, having shared a 154-run partnership with his captain in just over two and a half hours. Number three, Tildesley, could only manage the single before slicing a ball off Labour to cover point, before Quaife saw through to tee with the English on two for 165. McLaren, who had gone to tee on 88 not out, went to his century with three boundaries and an over off Labour. This was his fourth in tests, the most by anyone to this stage of test cricket. He celebrated by continuing to meet out harsh treatment to the bowling of Labour, jumping out and driving to the off-boundary numerous times, leading to his replacement by McLeod. At the other end, Trumbull bowled a series of seven maidens to Quaife. Finally, with the total having reached 193, McLaren was out, trapped in front by a full toss from McLeod. His 116 had taken 207 minutes and included 20 boundaries. Jessup was sent in as the new batsman and provided stark contrast to his stonewalling partner, Quaife. He hit five boundaries all around the wicket in only 16 minutes before missing a full toss from McLeod to be bowled for 24. He'd taken the score past 200 and was replaced by Jones, who could only manage nine before being caught behind off Noble. This brought Lily in to join Quaife at five for 236. With some luck, Lily found the boundary a few times, helping to take the score onto 272 before Quaife was bowled off the final ball of the day from Howe, having batted for almost two hours in making 21. With four wickets to fall, the match was still finely balanced. Lily, who had entered the previous day on 22, was joined by the debutante Braund. The new man handled the pace of Jones with ease, cutting into the boundary off the fourth ball he faced. At the other end, Noble set down five maidens in succession before Lily managed to find the leg boundary. Through slow batting, the two managed to take the score beyond 300. Lily had a couple of chances, with edges off Noble going just out of reach of hands before making their way to the boundary. Numerous bowling changes were tried, with even Trumper getting a turn, without luck, as the English made their way to lunch at 351. Lily had moved past his half-century and was on 63, whilst Braun was on 35. Crowds continued to pour into the ground, with over 30,000 in attendance after lunch. Braun took up the attack, moving quickly to his maiden half-century with a one-bounce four off Noble. The partnership went past 100 and continued until the score reached 396 before Lily was out, mishitting a ball to Laver off McLeod. He had made 84 with 13 boundaries and shared a 124-run partnership with Braun. Braun was out soon after taking the score past 400, also to McLeod, for 58. With English now 8 down, the Australians had the opportunity to end the innings quickly. However, the final two wickets frustrated them, adding almost 60 runs. The final partnership of Barnes and Blythe lasted for over 40 minutes. When Blythe was last out for 20, the English had compiled an imposing 464. McLeod was the pick of the bowlers at 4 for 84, but the Australians had been unable to build wicking-taking pressure on a benign pitch. The Australians commenced after tea with Gregory and Trumper opening the batting. Both batsmen took singles off the first over from Barnes. Shortly thereafter, Trumper attempted to turn a ball from Barnes onto the vacant leg side, only to hit a leading edge straight back to the bowler, give Barnes his first test wicket. Hill replaced him and settled into his run scoring. Both batsmen hit Braun for boundaries in the same over, whilst quick running between the wickets challenged some of the less athletic English fielders. The two managed to take the score beyond 50 and racked up 72 in the first hour of the Australian's innings with little risk. At this point, McLaren turned to the slow left arms of Blythe. This proved an excellent decision as Blythe took the edge of Gregory's bat having caught it slip for 48. He was replaced by Noble, who took the Australians within sight of stumps before stepping out to hit Blythe, only to miss and be stumped by Lily for two. Hal joined Hill and the two took the Australians to the end of the day at three for 103. The English had the advantage with a 361 run lead but the good batting conditions gave the Australians hope that they could match their first innings performance. After the rest day, the match resumed in excellent conditions. Hill and Howe began and took the score onto 112. Hill, who had made it to 46, played back to a ball from Barnes, only edge it onto his stumps, 
This heralded a collapse. In the next over, Howe was taken one-handed by Blythe in the slips off Braun. Barnes then bowled a magnificent leg cutter that pitched on leg and hit middle to bowl McLeod for a duck. Kelly then became the fourth wicket loss without a run added when he was bowled by Blythe. The Australians had collapsed to 7 for 112 and they couldn't blame the pitch. It was all due to excellent bowling and fielding from their opponents. Captain Darling was left to pick up the pieces. He managed to break the stranglehold of the bowlers, hitting Barnes for a boundary and breaking Blythe's spell of six straight maidens. Labour joined him in a 30-run stand, was out for six off Braun caught at fine leg. Trumbull and Darling saw this through to lunch for the Australians at 8 for 156. Following the break, Darling moved his score on to 39 before he hit Barnes to quaff at mid-off. Barnes soon after finished the innings, dismissing Jones to give him his fifth wicket on debut, a performance which showed his control over pace, length and cut to wrinkle out batsmen. The Australians could only manage 168, a real shock given the conditions. Trailing by 296 runs, they were asked to bat again. Darling took it upon himself to open the second innings with Trumper as his partner. They managed to move the score on to 12 before Darling attempted to hit Braun over square leg. Jessup was fielding that position and struck his hand high in the air, plucking the catch. Darling was dismissed to three and was soon joined back in the pavilion by his state teammate Hill, who was clean bowled without scoring in the same over. Noble joined Trumper and the two steadied the innings, with Trumper doing most of the scoring. He'd taken the total beyond 50 before he became Blythe's first victim, caught behind for 34. Noble fell in the same fashion seven runs later, whilst McLeod competed a pair when he was bowled by Blythe. The Australians had now collapsed to 5 for 59. Gregory, who had been at the other end for the Noble and McLeod dismissals, was fortunate to survive soon after, when Edge was dropped by Jones in the slips. His partner Kelly also rode his luck, with Hayward dropping a catch due to looking into the sun. However, he didn't last much longer, falling with a score on 89 to Blythe for 12. This brought Trumbull to the crease. He attacked, hitting three-fourths in an over off Blythe and taking the score past 100. The scoring rate then slowed, only moving in singles until it reached 129, where Trumbull's out for 26, caught behind off Barnes. Labour couldn't manage a score when he was stumped off Braun, whilst Gregory, who had had up for almost an hour and a half, became Braun's fourth victim when he was caught in the slips by McLaren. With only one wicket remaining, Hal hit out, firing the boundary twice off Braun before then taking 16 off a Barnes over. He was left stranded on 31 not out when Jones was caught on the boundary off Braun for two, ending the Australian innings on 172. Braun would finish with five wickets in the second innings whilst Blythe claimed four. Along with Barnes, the three debutante bowlers had done an amazing job, bowling the Australians out twice cheaply on a flat pitch. The English had been written off by their own press, but they started the test series with a thumping victory by an innings of 124 runs. After the match, there was some consternation in the Australian press over the selections for the first test, with the selectors having ignored younger, informed players for those who may have been past their prime. As such, the selectors responded for the second test starting a fortnight after the first on New Year's Day in Melbourne. McLeod and Lavery were dropped in favour of two debutants, Warwick Armstrong from Victoria and Reg Duff from New South Wales. Poitivan had been expected to make his debut, but suffered a finger injury and was ruled out. Coming off their victory, the English went in unchanged. The MCG had suffered from three days of heavy rain prior to the match and was in a terrible condition. As such, when McLaren won the toss, he had little hesitation in putting the Australians into bat. His bowling lineup of Barnes, Braun and Blythe was well suited to the conditions. This was backed up as Barnes dismissed Trumper on the second ball of the match, flashing a ball to third man. Hill joined Darling at the crease. Darling was struck in the chest by Blythe's first ball, but then lifted the second to within 10 metres of the boundary. The ground was so sodden that the ball didn't make the rope, however. Darling, trying to hit another ball out of the ground, was lucky to survive when Tilsley misjudged the catch. Hill followed his captain's lead, trying to hit out before he was done in by the dangers of the pitch. Through luck, they moved the score on to 30 quickly. 
Hill then attempted a big hit off Barnes, but the ball shot through low to bowl him for 15. This brought about a collapse. Darling followed soon after, caught behind off Blythe, before Noble was dismissed later in the over in the same manner. Gregory then survived one stopping opportunity, but not a second, giving Blythe his third wicket in as many overs. The Australians had collapsed to 5 for 38. Not out batsman Trumbull was joined by one of the debutants in Reg Duff. Duff nearly ran out his partner first ball, attempting a short single which Trumbull only survived as Lily missed a short throw at the stumps. Darling was a short man and Barnes attempted to bounce him, but he was up for the challenge, hooking one for four and scoring off many others. With Trumbull, the two were able to put on 43 runs in as many minutes before a ball from Blythe caught the shoulder of Trumbull's bat to have him caught in the slips of 16. Whilst Duff followed soon after when he was caught off Barnes for an enterprising 32, which included five boundaries. The score was now seven for 85. Howell and Kelly both fell quickly to Barnes, giving him his second five-wicket haul in the series, before number 11 swung some big shots to take the score past 100, with the innings ending on his dismissal for 14. Barnes took the final wicket to end with 6 for 42, whilst Blythe claimed the other four. The Australians had only batted for 32 overs in constructing their 112, but the advantage of that was that the pitcher not had time to recover, meaning the English would have to face the same conditions in their innings. McLaren and Hayward opened for the English. McLaren hit the first ball from Trumbull for four and then took a single. Hayward on his first ball attempted a big hit, but could only sky to Darling, who took a simple catch. Tildesley came in at three and attempted to defend, resulting in a lot of hits on his hands and body from irregularly bouncing balls. McLaren was finding run scoring easier, but when he reached 13, he attempted a big shot, only to be caught in the outfield by Jones off Trumbull. Trumbull then followed up by claiming Tildesley, who tamely hit a ball to mid-on. The English were now three for 16. Trumbull had done all the damage so far. It was to be a man at the other end, Monty Noble, who had demolished England's innings. Montague Alfred Noble was born on the 28th of January, 1873 in Sydney. The youngest of eight children, Noble began his cricket with the Paddington Cricket Club and quickly made a name for himself. He debuted for New South Wales just before turning 20 and played a key role in successive Shield victories across the 1895-96 and 1896-97 seasons. His batting skills in his off-spin medium pace combination with the ball meant that he was a natural successor to George Giffen in the test side and was Giffen's rejection of terms to play in the second test of the 1897-98 tour that led to Noble getting his test spot. He immediately made an impression, becoming the leading wicket-taker for Australia in that series before impressing on the 1899 tour of England with his Dow defence leading to a draw in the fourth test that helped Australia achieve a 1-0 series result. Now in his 11th test match, he was about to put on a display worthy of the greats. Two vastly different bats were at the crease, the ultra-defensive Quaith and ultra-attacking Jessup. Noble beat the defences of Quaith, bowling him for a duck. At the other end, Jessup took 12 off Trumbull. Noble's next over saw him have the new batsman gun stumped for a duck. Jessup kept striking out at Trumbull, launching him into the crowd for six before skying a ball into the outfield where Jones dropped the chance. He followed this up with another boundary in a single, taking him to face Noble. Once again, Noble tempted a batsman from his crease and Kelly completed a sharp stumping. Jessup had made 27 in only 19 minutes, but he was dismissed at 6 of 51 and would be the last gasp of life in the innings. Noble would spin a web around the remaining batsmen. The last four wickets could only manage another 10 runs, with Noble claiming all those to fall, ending with the extraordinary figures of 7 for 13 in just short of 8 overs. Trumbull had gone for 38 runs in 8 overs whilst taking the first 3 wickets to fall. The English total of 61 left them 51 runs behind the Australians, with the only silver lying being that you still had over an hour and a half on a bowling-friendly pitch to get to work on the Australians. Darling promoted himself and Trumbull to open the batting, facing the bowling of Barnes and Blythe. 
The two batsmen did a fine job holding out the English, but did not advance the score, with only 12 runs coming up in the first 11 overs. However, the pitch was improving, and the Australians knew they could avoid losing wickets today. They would be in a strong position for the rest of the match. Darling did try some more adventurous shots, and was somewhat lucky to survive, but eventually they approached the hour mark with 32 on the board, before Darling played one shot too many and hold out on the boundary off Barnes. He was replaced by Kelly, the Australians determining to hold back their best batsman until the pitch improved. Kelly and Trumbull worked in singles before Trumbull was caught in the slips off Barnes, having made 16 in 71 minutes of batting. Here, there was a collapse. Newman Howe mishit his second ball to be caught a point. Gregory replaced him, but a miscommunication led to the run out of Kelly. Jones managed five runs before holding out off Barnes, giving his fourth wicket of the innings and his tenth of the match. However, that ended the day, with 25 wickets falling across the course of the play. The Australians had finished on 5 for 48, but still had their best batting talent, including Gregory, Trumper and Hill, to build on their lead of 99. With no rain overnight, the pitch had improved significantly by the start of day two. Both sides had agreed before the test began, the groundsmen would be allowed to work on it after the first day, and the bumps and gullies had been smoothed out. As such, when Hill came out to join the not-out batsman Gregory, there were few difficulties in the pitch. They started steadily, working in ones and twos. Hill was caught off a no-ball from Barnes, much to the crowd's relief. The partnership reached 50 and took the Australians to the brink of 100 before the English struck for the first time on day two, with Gregory edging Barnes into the slips to be dismissed for 17. Trumper joined Hill at 6 for 98 and took the score past 100 with a couple of four off Braund, whilst Hill also struck a leg-side boundary off the same bowler. At 122, Blythe was tried in place of Braund, but couldn't dislodge the partnership as they made their way to lunch on 6 for 128, with Hill on 40. On the first ball after resumption, Trumper edged Barnes behind to be out for 16. Newman Noble started well, clipping a ball off his pads for an all-run four. Shortly after, Hill brought up his 50 with a boundary to long on. The 150 was raised as the lead passed 200, with the crowd growing more and more confident in the home side's position. Finally, with a score on 167, Noble played and missed a ball from Blythe. The ball struck him on the pad and he was adjudged LBW, having also made 16. Duff replaced him and began cautiously, settling in to play second fiddle to the set man in Hill. After bowling 41 consecutive overs across two days in the innings, Barnes was finally given a rest, with Jessup taking up the tack. He was struck for two boundaries by Duff and then immediately replaced. The two continued to score freely, taking the total past 200 just before tea. The Australians heading to the break on 214. Hill had moved into the 80s with little fuss. After tea, the batsmen contented themselves with taking singles. Eventually, Hill struck out, finding the cover boundary to take him into the 90s and followed up with another four the following ball. He reached 99 and the crowd prepared to celebrate. Barnes provided a long hop outside off to Hill, but the batsman could only top edge it down to Jessup at third man, who took a simple catch. He became the first player to score 99 in the test match, his innings having taken over three hours and included seven boundaries. The Australians were now 9 for 233 as Armstrong joined Duff, who was on 28. The two men benefited from a tired attack, receiving many loose balls they could hit to the boundary, whilst also running judiciously between the wickets. Duff would bring up his half-century after almost 100 minutes of batting, whilst the two would take the score onto 300 by stumps. Duff had made his way to 71, whilst Armstrong was on 25, with the Australians' lead now over 350. Duff started the third day with a bang, hitting fours off both Blythe and Barnes to take his score into the 80s. At this point, McLaren switched Blythe for Braund, and the scoring slowed, the two batsmen preferring to play the leg-break bowler with the pad, knowing that, under the LBW rules at the time, they could only be out if the ball pitched in line with the stumps. Eventually, they started to hit out the leg breaks, with Armstrong hitting him over long off, whilst Duck cut through the slips to move into the 90s. 
Duff, to delight the crowd, soon after moved to 99 with a sparkling off-drive, for a nudge into the leg side saw him gain the single to bring up his century, the third Australian to do so on debut after Charles Bannerman and Harry Graham. The innings was over shortly after when Braun trapped Duff LBW, ending his innings at 104, having batted for over three and a half hours and hitting 11 fours. Armstrong was left not out on 45 and shared in a 121-run partnership for the 10th wicket, a record to that point in tests. Barnes had finished the innings with seven wickets, giving him 13 for the match, but he lacked support from the other bowlers in the second innings. The Australians ended on 353, sending the English the total of 405 to win the match. The English had the worst possible start in their chase when Noble looped up a juicy full toss to McLaren, who attempted to whack it for four, but could only top edge it straight into the air, where Trumbull ran in for a simple catch. Tilsley then joined Hayward at one for two. He started well, hitting an all-run four off Noble before finding the boundary against Jones at the other end. Haywood also found the boundary off Jones, but otherwise scoring was slow. At 29, Trumbull was brought on for immediate results, drawing Haywood from his crease to have him stumped for 12. With Quake arriving at the crease, progress was made slowly. The Australians crowded the new batsman, but he was up for the challenge, keeping out the bowling as Darling cycled through his options. He received a lucky reprieve when he was caught at short leg off a Trumbull no ball. The two batsmen grounded all the way to T, reaching it at 2 for 66, with Tildesley on 32 and Quaife 18. Following the break, the two took their partnership beyond 50 with more slow play before Noble managed to sneak one past Quaife's defences to bowl in for 25. He was replaced by his opposite, the big-hitting Jessup. Jessup lived up to his reputation, taking 11 from one Trumbull over whilst also finding the boundary off Jones and Noble. He survived a couple of close catching chances, but was lucky that the ball went through the fielder's fingers. He took the score past 100 and had scored 32 runs at a better than run a minute before he mishit one from Noble to Gregory at mid-wicket, who completed the catch. Soon after, Lily became Noble's fourth victim when he tamely patted one to mid-on to be out for a duck. With a score of 523, the innings could have been over that night. However, Braun joined Tidesley and the two managed to get through the stumps without losing another wicket. Tidesley had moved on to 60 by this stage, but the result was looking more and more like an Australian victory, with English still trailing by 257 runs. Heavy rain fell overnight, reducing the pitch to a quagmire. It kept the players from the field until after the scheduled lunch break. Tildesley made a bright start with a four to leg, but fell soon after caught it short leg off Noble from a ball that hit the shoulder of the bat. Braun made a few big hits that found the boundary, but it played one too many to be caught by Darling off Noble, giving him his six for the innings. The match then wrapped up quickly. Trumbull had gun sky one high, only for Jones to make a simple catch. Next ball, Jones played a similar stroke for a similar result. Darling made the catch this time. Rather than trying to play out the hat-trick ball, Barnes attempted the same shot as his predecessors, with the bowler completing the catch. Trumbull had completed the second hat-trick by an Australian, following Spothless' effort in 1879 at the same ground. With the English innings ending on 175, the Australians claimed a 229-run victory to level the series. This is the end of part one of our episode coming the 1901-02 tour by England. Part two, where the exciting conclusion of the series will play out, will be released next week. Thank you for listening. New episodes of Endless Summons will be released fortnightly. Please subscribe to be notified of new releases. You can also follow us on Twitter at pod underscore endless, and you can email us at endlesssummerpod at gmail.com.